This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Kaboodle Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name's Broderick, and it's a pleasure to be here in the studio with you on this uh, lovely Sunday, very sunny outside. It was great to have Irish voice before. Thank you very much for that. Um, But now it's time to get into some science, and joining me in the studio for it today is uh, Pallavi. Welcome along, Pallavi. Thank you, Broderick. (laughs) It's fantastic to have you here. We've got some interesting stuff to get through today. We started off with... um, what is a shooting star by They Might Be Giants? Because we are going to be talking about space today, and we've got David Renicky joining us later on. And uh, today, also being the International Day of Biodiversity, we um, we have Claire. Claire Grills is going to join us via phone and bring us uh, some stories about some wild things out there. But to begin with, well, actually, I must say, Pallavi, when I was researching today's show, I was I was actually considering whether or not I really needed to prepare for it um, because there were reports, I don't know if you heard them, that the world was going to end. Yeah, I did, I did. Uh, I mean, look, I, May 21st at 6pm, so that was last night, there were supposed to be earthquakes and disasters and complete apocalypse starting in New Zealand and working their way around the world. But 6pm uh, ticked over and the news came on TV and... Everything just continued to go along as normal, so I figured that um, we would be presenting this morning, which we are, <laughs> and we're still alive and well. Yeah, and I, and I guess, you know, it's it's probably good uh, if once in a while, if, you know, people like uh, the person who claimed that the world's going to end come, come around, because, you know, it just... You know, probably it it would help to reinforce the ideas of science and, you know, take people away from this kind of, uh, you know, crazy thought processes where, you know, uh, it's it's just, you know, people who kind of instill fear and, you know, keep giving these dates as if, you know, the world is going to end on this day or that day because there's another this thing that the world is going to end in 2012. So, you know, you know, those kind of things according to the Mayan calendar. So, uh, you know, those kind of theories. It's good because uh, the science can easily rebuff. I mean, you don't need science to rebuff these people because, you know, it doesn't happen. No, that's right. I mean, it clearly didn't happen last night. Now, th- this claim actually came from a, a radical Christian group called Family Radio um, and their president, Howard Camping, who uh, Howard had actually done some reading of the Bible and a little maths too to make his calculation of the 21st of May. Mm-hmm. Now, what he actually did was he... Um, he decided to. He went back to uh, the days of Noah and his ark, mm-hmm. um, which uh, he calculated to be at four thousand nine hundred and ninety BC, mm-hmm. uh, because it's generally accepted that the exodus of the Jews out of Egypt happened in fourteen forty seven. Mm-hmm. So he counted back through generations until he got to Noah and his ark. Um, then to calculate the next wipeout of the human race, Camping looked at three Bible verses. Uh, the first from Genesis chapter 7, verse 4 says, Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the place, face of the earth every living creature I have made. Mm-hmm. So they had seven days to prepare back then, so Camping took this number as a benchmark, mm-hmm. um, and then he went again to the Bible, this time looking at Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 8, which says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So 
He then times his seven days by a thousand to get the seven thousand years, which got us from forty nine ninety BC up to. Well, according to my calculations, that's twenty ten. But camping must have got to twenty eleven somehow. Um, and then the exact date, which I find most interesting, is uh, he went back to the Bible again for a third Bible verse, to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, which says, uh, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. So that's when the flood occurred in Noah's time, which is on the 17th year. Uh, which is the standard Hebrew calendar back then, uh, which now corresponds to May 21st in 2011. Um, but as you said, clearly nothing's happened. And I think um, camping might have done well to read a bit more of the Bible, um, because in Matthew it actually says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. <laughs> so even God himself says we really can't predict yeah. when the apocalypse is going to come. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, with all uh, the religious texts, you know, they are subjective, and whether it's Mayan, Egyptian, Hindu, Chinese, or any, any I mean, you know, they're very subjective. So you know, it's kind of uh, very weird that this person should claim so... Uh, you know, uh, he should be so confident that the world is going to end. <laughs> well, that's that's right. I mean, but it's interesting that people are so quick to believe it. Um, you know, there's been uh, about 44 distinct end-of-the-world predictions uh, that uh, people have found and, and come and gone and nothing's ever happened. And there's got to be some psychology behind all this, why people still believe. And there is. Um, so, social psychologists say that people have a problem when they have um, two beliefs that sit side by side. For example, the belief that the world's going to end, uh, for which they sell that people sell their homes, their possessions, get rid of everything. And then the realisation that the world's still here, as it is now. And clearly, these two beliefs just don't mix together. But psychologist Richmond Wiseman says that, according to this idea, people find it uncomfortable to hold two conflicting beliefs in their head at the same time. So they perform all types of mental gymnastics just to reconcile the two. Um, because people can't deal with these two contradictory beliefs, they find a, a seemingly rational explanation, such as the calculations were wrong, or that their preaching converted so many people that the world was saved. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this explanation just makes yeah. it all seem makes sense yeah, no, the only time i would be really scared is if you know nasa or some a space agency released uh, you know press release saying that an asteroid is hurtling towards the earth i mean that would really scare me you know then i would be <laughs> preparing myself but uh, beyond that i mean it's very difficult to predict you know whether there's going to be an earthquake or anything and even that wouldn't cause the end of the world i mean I hope not <laughs> yeah well that's right and look according to nasa um there's there's no disasters on on the way. They made a a, a statement uh, a while ago when that movie 2012 came out about <laughs> the Mayan predictions, uh, and and they said that these predictions are generally based on a planet called Nibiru heading towards Earth. Um, uh, and according to NASA, this disaster was primarily likely for May 2003, though when zero happened, the doomsday date was changed brazenly to December 2012. Um, but NASA says that the Earth is quite safe for more than 4 billion years, uh, and credible scientists worldwide know of no threat associated with 2012 or any other assumed doomsday, as there are no threatening asteroids as large as the one 65 million years ago that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. So there are NASA... Setting our mind at ease there, yeah. making it seem okay. But it was interesting. Um, 
reading online about some of the different ways that uh, people predicted the end of the world. There was climate change. Uh, some people said Justin Bieber was a prediction of the end of the world coming. Um, I'm not sure of the science behind that one. And there were things like antimatter and, and dark energy too. And I know uh, you've found some research that has confirmed the presence of dark energy out yeah. there. In fact, I remember when the when the Large Hadron Collider was going to go on, that time also some people were fearing, you know, what if something happens uh, in, in CERN at Sun. Yes, yeah. Sun, yeah, yeah. People were like, oh, you know, what if it creates a black hole and, you know, like something happens to the planet? Uh, but fortunately, nothing happened. No, Hopefully that's will <laughs> find the Higgs boson soon enough. We're but, all safe, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there uh, have been these results that have come out from a major astronomical survey which, which, which seem to confirm that uh, dark energy really does make up uh, 74% of the universe. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and because the reason why dark energy is so interesting is because you know it's it's very difficult to explain why the universe is expanding at such a such a fast rate and in fact uh, uh, one of the co-authors of that uh, publication dr chris blake from um, uh, swissburn university in melbourne he says that the results tell us that dark energy is a cosmological constant as einstein proposed so you know i mean cosmo- cosmological constant one of those things that einstein first said exists and then kind of said that it didn't but uh, apparently it does and um, and of course I, I mean i've picked this up from the bbc but i'm sure it's everywhere that this news that you know dark energy i mean i guess uh, it still isn't like you know they are not absolutely certain about how it functions and what happens but it seems that it does exist yeah. So it's a very uh, physicist way of describing things. I think that <laughs> you know, there's there's something out there, and it must be doing this because we can see it happening. So we'll just call it dark energy. And I mean, but it's great that we are learning more yeah. about it. Um, yeah, in the, the dark matter and dark energy is probably things that we cannot explain. That's why they're called dark matter or dark yeah. energy. It's, it's probably nothing to do with their color or you know, in the sense no. absence <laughs> of light. It's just that we don't know enough about them. So you know, there's some energy that's making the universe expand but what is it exactly it's you know still it could be anything out there it could be the um the tortoise with the world on his back um (laughs) making it expand but look there is some amazing stuff going out there on going on in space and uh we've got david renneke who's going to be joining us soon Mm -hmm. uh, to chat a little bit more about uh some astronomical news and what's Mm -hmm. going on out there in the world of astronomy uh but before we get to david let's have a little bit of music and that was the april maze there with their song love this life and we certainly are loving this life this morning some fantastic uh science lined up for you on fuzzy logic 2x 98.3 fm now today is the 22nd of may which is actually uh, interesting thing happened this day in science back in 1995. Astronomers Amanda S. Bosch and Andrew S. Rivkin found two new moons of Saturn in photos taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. So that was on this day in 1995, and uh, we're actually going to talk a bit more about the Hubble Telescope now. Joining us via phone is uh, David Renneke, amateur astronomer, one of Australia's most respected amateur astronomers. Welcome along, David. Yeah, good morning, Broderick. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm well. Now... Um, the Hubble Telescope, it's, it's been with us for a little while now, hasn't it? 
It has, yeah. Launched in 1990, uh, 20 years worth of work went into this amazing telescope and 2 billion American US dollars, well, American dollars went into it. Look, astronomers are really happy when this is put into orbit in 1990 because for the first time, you know, we have a telescope outside the Earth to do some really good super science. Um, it, it was something that we've been waiting for for a long time. Doing astronomy on planet Earth prior to 1990 meant peering through clouds and atmosphere and rain. You can't really do that. It's not conducive to good research. So they commissioned this telescope to be produced and put into orbit, and it was. And everything went fine up until the time they turned it on, and it didn't work. Now, this is embarrassment right across the uh, this astronomical spectrum. Here's a telescope that's returning worse images than a 20 or $30 plastic toy telescope you'd buy at any you know, markdown department store. And the reason the telescope didn't work was Somebody put a three-millimeter washer in the wrong place. (laughs) (laughs) The the mirror was warped, get this, one-fiftieth the width of a human hair. Wow. They're the tolerances we're working with, yeah. Wow. And uh, the the realisation was that uh, you can't repair this just like you go out and fix your car. You can't send the NRMA there. It's in orbit around the Earth. So we had to sit it out for a couple of years. And what they did, technicians in the laboratories here at, uh, in, in America, they worked on the telescope's optics um, on the camera that was up there. And what they did was they produced a set of lenses to be replaced on the telescope at a future date, 1993. Now, these were basically corrective lenses, like you put contact lenses on the human eye, and it worked. It worked so well that it returned images straight away within the first moments of being turned on. And in my opinion, it's arguably, well, very arguably, uh, the most important scientific tool, uh, most, most important invention we've ever done, uh, you know, within reason. I mean, there are other things, too, that, that are probably close to it, medical uh, inventions and stuff, but to me, this is the, the one of the most important inventions in history. This telescope has not only allowed us to find things like black holes and pulsars and quasars, but do you know what? We've looked right back to the dawn of time, right to the birth of our universe with this amazing telescope. It's pretty amazing stuff. Now, is this is the Hubble telescope still in operation? Are we still using it? Oh, you betcha. I mean, this thing's been returning images back, super images for, uh, you know, for decades now, and it still will, but there's a sad end of this tale. America, at the end of this year, won't have any way of getting back into space, so they can't perform any maintenance on the telescope. There is regular maintenance. Well, regular maintenance has been done on the telescope. Uh, they replaced the gyros there recently. The batteries need repairing. Uh, they need to upgrade the camera details from time to time. So we've been up there doing maintenance, maintenance on it since 1993. And in 2008 at the Kennedy Centre at America, I actually sat down and spoke to, for quite some time, the man who actually put this into orbit, Story Musgrave. He's one of the most celebrated astronauts in America. And uh, he told me that, you know, when you see this telescope up there up close like I have, he said you just get some idea on the enormity of what it can do. He said there are, it, it, it looks like it's a car that's been in a hailstorm. There are all little dents all over it. And he said at one point along the tube of the telescope, it's about the size of a bus. Uh, there's a neat hole from one side to the other where a piece of rock or something went through it. So it's up there in um, enormous difficult circumstances in a, in a place where there's being battered by cosmic rays and heat from the sun uh, <laughs> and it's doing some amazing work up there. So there you go. It's been in operation all that time. When it's finished its uh, duty, 
they can't do any more with it in 2018. I think that's about the time it's going to be uh, running down a little bit. Like a clock that runs down, you've got to rewind it now and then. Here's the sad end of this telescope. They plan to what they call de-orbit the Hubble telescope. And this is going to happen well before 2020, and they're going to drop it in the ocean off the coast of Western Australia. So one night I can see a group of people out on a fishing boat sitting out in the middle of the ocean out there looking at the beautiful night sky. Then about 2 o'clock in the morning, one of them's going to look up and say, oh, look at that, big meteor coming through. That's not the meteor. That's, that's the Hubble telescope burning up in the atmosphere. I think that's a sad end to a telescope that's given us so much. Yeah, it's a pity we can't sort of bring it back nicely and put it in a museum or something like that. I think they should, Roderick. I think there's going to be an outcry right around the world from the (laughs) astronomical community, and I'll be heralding, I'll be up there championing the cause too to do that. You know, I saw this in the Smithsonian Institute a few years ago in Washington, D.C. They've got one in a corner, a mock-up of the telescope, and it is absolutely huge. Hmm, Amazing stuff, certainly. uh, very interesting to see, and I'm curious to know whether um, the SKA that's currently being developed, we've had a few people talking on Fuzzy Logic about that, whether that's uh, going to replace some of the images uh, that may have been uh, brought to us by the Hubble, whether we can do the same thing with radio astronomy. Yeah, I was going to draw the distinction there, and you have. It's uh, important we know that there's a radio telescope we're talking about. Hubble telescope can see in ultraviolet, I think infrared, of course, and it's mainly a visual telescope. In other words, it, it gives you what the eye sees. But the SKA is part of something I'm, I'm involved with, uh, with Anne Harris here and, uh, and I think Peter Wheeler and a few other people. They're actually sponsoring my school program, Astronomy Outreach. Now, I'm working with these people. I'm trying to publicise it. I think it's a great course. I think if we get this, and we, we probably will, we should, the decision's being handed down next year. If we get this telescope array here in Western Australia, uh, I'm not in Western Australia, but in Western Australia, we, it'll be the biggest thing in astronomy in 50 years. It'll, it'll show us more than we've ever dreamed of, but only in the radio wavelength. This is not an optical telescope. It'll be able to peer through gas clouds that we can't see through. It'll be able to look at the end, uh, the other end of our galaxy that we're, gonna, we're having trouble with. Uh, radio signals, radio waves penetrate clouds of gas like that, and they form a picture very much like the early radio pictures that newspapers used to deal with to make a picture in their paper. They were sent from overseas by a series of dots and dashes. Uh, this is much more refined than that, but keep your fingers crossed. There's us in South Africa that are on the the list of being chosen for it out of probably 22 contenders or 20-something contenders, and I think we're in a pretty good position to do that. It's a nice spot they've picked out. It's very, very quiet, and I've got to say to you, and I'm sorry to tell you that radio telescopes hate radio stations. (laughs) They just don't like the noise coming from them. So we've not only got clear skies and beautiful weather, Uh, going for us, but we're also in the running for this amazing SKA radio telescope. Fingers crossed, I think we'll get it. Yeah, and we'll definitely keep updating you on Fuzzy Logic with uh, more news about the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, as we get it. Uh, But moving through space, uh, further than the Hubble telescope now, looking at Mars, and... um, are we possibly going to be able to look at internet in Mars and, and living up there? What a good question. You know, here we are. We, we have a, a technology now that wasn't available when I was at school. And a lot of people probably my age who, who grew up with uh, slide rules, never knew what a calculator was, 
uh, we didn't have the technology we've got. We've got the internet now. Now that's been the biggest boon to learning and, and you know industry. I think you'll agree uh, in history. I mean, there's something that that is just being used by so many people. Well, believe it or not, we're heading for an interplanetary internet system. This is being developed now, and it's something whose time has probably already come. NASA are testing a system out to try and work out a way, a standardised procedure, an internet protocol, if you will, that we can use in our journeys between the planets because we'll be moving to Mars in the next 20 or 30 years. We'll certainly be travelling to the Moon and back. There'll be bases well on the Moon by 2050 and we'll be working and living in space in a way that we've never even thought of. Uh, in a 100 years' time, you know, thousands, maybe millions of people will be living outside and working outside the Earth. So we're going to need a communication system System to do that, and if you think it's all pie in the sky, boom, boom. Vince, <laughs> Vince Surf, the chief internet evangelist for Google, he's one of the head guys there. Is a man who knows this system. He's one of the fathers of the internet, and he's got his priorities set out for this world's online future. Uh, you listen to people like him. These are the people you've got to listen to. They're the visionaries. They're the people who got us where we are now. And uh, I, I've just sort of stoked that. You know, very soon we're going to have some sort of a, a limited internet access service being working in, and, and being operated in deep space. I think it's great. Uh, yeah, hi, David. Talking about communications, just uh, out of curiosity, wanted to know what are chances of uh, making contact with uh, some form of uh, alien life in in the near future? Is it considering that so many planets have been discovered uh, recently? I mean, it, any any news on that front as well? How are you, Pavavi? I'm fine, David. It's nice to talk to you. That's a good question and one that's been posed to me quite often. I will say this to you, that I firmly believe that the universe is teeming with life. And not only that, but I believe the galaxy would also be teeming with life. Why do I say that? Simply because the uh, the numbers are too great. They're staggering. When you look at our galaxy, there's 100 billion stars there. There may even be 300 billion. Now, you consider that these are stars... And a lot of them are like our own sun. Not all, but, but a lot are. Now, if they've got planetary systems around them, it's quite in the realm of possibility that one of those or some of those or a lot of those may have developed a planet that's capable of supporting life. And if life is on some of those worlds out there like it is here, they may have reached the stage where we are where they're starting to question too whether anyone else is out there. I don't know. My answer to you and anyone asking that question, I think that E.T. is out there. I think if we find E.T. and we will, I think we'll find him. I don't think they will find us. But I think once we establish there's life out there, they will more than likely, in my opinion, and this is stretching it, appear to, to look pretty much like we do. I think life may be more favourable to carbon cycle reproduction, uh, People based on the carbon cycle like we are, we breathe the oxygen in and we produce carbon dioxide. The plants take that and produce oxygen. So we're carbon based and, and I think if life's out there, and as I said earlier, I think it, it is in, in abundance, I think they'll probably look pretty much like we do. Poor people. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a huge uh, claim to make, but I, 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 I can certainly see some science to back that up there, mm-hmm. I reckon. You know, if we've evolved into the form we are, there must be a re- good reason for it. Mm-hmm. Yep. It must be very favourable. You've got to have certain conditions too. It could be, yeah, here's a, this is the ringer, this is the outside, it could be we're just one big fluke. That's what <laughs> some people have proposed. But look, 
I, I don't want to take a jaundice view on it. I'd rather take a more liberal look and say that it may be a fluke, fluke but if you have a fluke happening once, it can happen again, you know. So uh, let's let's just see how we go. I, I think that would be, Broderick and Polybi, I think you would agree that that would be the biggest story in human history. It would be. I, I personally think it it uh, it would be uh, probably the biggest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, suddenly we go from a human history to a... An <laughs> Cosmic it, history. Yeah. Do you know what? It's also got religious overtones too when you think about it. Now, I, I don't want to draw... I don't want to draw religion into this because any time you mix religion in, in talking with astronomy and space, you can offend people, and I don't want to do that. I'm just saying, I'm just throwing a... Um, I'm being the devil's advocate here, which is a terrible phrase to use when we're talking about religion. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, look, we, we, we've got to understand that when we meet people out there, we meet other civilizations. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting um, and curious if they had no conception of God? if they had no idea of a religion or a saviour, like we do. Now, that's that's something to think about, you know. If God is universal, which we are led to believe, uh, my feeling is that he should be in other worlds. So that's a bit of a boner. That's a ring-in, a real, real interesting question to throw in, but I, I, I prefer not to get involved in discussions like that because it gets into realms that I'm not um, uh, not okay with, I'm not experienced in theology. Yeah, I, I for one have always felt that, uh, you know, that uh, life is, uh, yeah, you, that universe has this li- life uh, everywhere yes. in the universe, maybe not everywhere, but at a lot of places, and yes. it's just a matter of time, you know, that we'll, we'll someday yes. come in contact with some alien civilization. So. Well, do you know what? The, the Vatican has now re- recently come out and said that there's no reason for, well, well, there's nothing stopping life being out there. And, and that surprised me, and a lot of people don't know this, the Vatican... It's a city on its own. It's also an observatory. They have a huge observatory. The Vatican is one of the world's biggest observatories. They have astronomers working there. And they've made a statement recently that God being, um, oh, well, omnipotent, I guess is the word, isn't it? Everywhere, uh, omnipresent, uh, I think that's the word. <laughs> God being who he is, uh, he would have to be you know, known by by other worlds, and they're, they're saying, the Vatican is saying that there's nothing uh, within their teaching or their religion or their beliefs that says that this can't be the case. And, uh, you know, one, one funny little anecdote to this, they've just recently pardoned Galileo after 400 years. They've said, look, we, we did the wrong thing by back in 1630 or 1620 or 40 or whatever it was when they before the Inquisition, and he was talking about silly theory about the Earth being, you know, not the centre of the universe, uh, just one planet circling around the sun. They thought that was a crook idea, so they took Galileo to task for it. Now they've uh, vindicated him and uh, placed a statue of Galileo uh, near the Vatican. That's certainly a very good development. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great, great development between uh, religion and science at the... Um, <laughs> The Catholics, but from one um, false idea of the uh, sun rotating around the Earth to the another false idea of uh, the Earth being flat. Oh dear! Yeah. Now, David, I was talking to you earlier, and you said there's people out there who still believe that the Earth is flat. Are you ready for this? Uh, I'm not sure I am, to be honest. <laughs> okay, here's what happened to me, Paul. You are sitting down. I hope. 
Oh yes, we're yeah, all on yeah, our seats yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, here I am. I, I do I do astronomy lectures. I talk to people and I show them the night sky. And we had a, a big session one night here in Port Macquarie where I was t- uh, doing a talk at the observatory. And at the end of the talk, we had a family come over to me and they said, look, we enjoyed the talk. The slides were great. And I thought, well, thank you very much. And she said, look, we don't believe any of that because we're members of the Flat Earth Society. Now, I thought this is a joke. I, I treated it as a joke, <laughs> but then I could see that she was quite serious, and the family were there too, two kids and him, uh, him and her. And I said, you're really telling me? She said, yes. She said, look, you know, we are members of the... We have a, a newsletter, and there's a membership, and I went home and checked on it, and they certainly, they are there. There is a real thing called the Flat Earth Society. I had, well, I wouldn't call it an argument. I call it a... A lively discussion. <laughs> uh, that, well, if, you, if you know what I mean, I'm talking about. I, I had. Uh, I, I said to them, "Look, I said, look, I can't understand your thinking here. This is the 21st century." She said, uh, "You're being fooled like everybody else." As I said, "How about when they they went to the moon and we turned back and we could see the Earth behind us? I mean, the Earth is round." She said, "No, it's not. It's like a plate." So their explanation is when they travel around the world, they really travel around the rim of the plate a flat plate and I thought well I can't argue with you there they, they weren't willing to see my point of view but I got it with a beauty I, I came back and said look tell me this if the earth is flat which you propose it is how come all the countries in the world don't have daylight at the same time that was where the discussion finished they, they went off in a huff and, <laughs> and I went home scratching my head thinking what really happened here? Look, isn't it funny? The Flat Earth Society exists. They were actually founded by a man named Samuel Shenton in 1956. He was an Englishman, but he let it slip, but uh, it, it sort of faded away for a little while. Then it was picked up by Charles Johnson, who picked it up, went with it, and built it into a large organisation, a worldwide organisation. Now, you won't be surprised when I tell you where he comes from. He comes from California. Uh. <laughs> you are not surprised. No. Not at all. <laughs> so here, here we here we have a, a membership of people who uh, have joined this. And if you want a, about ten minutes worth of uh, enjoyment and a bit of fun on the internet, just Google up Flat Earth Society. They also go by the name of the International Flat Earth Research Society too. And uh, and you, like I thought, all this finished with Aristotle, as we all know, Aristotle was probably one of the greatest thinkers of all time. And it was in 330 BC, I mean, this is a long time ago, that he even wised up to the fact that the Earth may be round. But these people exist, they're out there, and uh, I actually met them. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. Well, there you are. Thanks very much for all that, David. Uh, Some very interesting astronomy news. It's a pleasure once again to have you on Fuzzy Logic. I'll be with you too. Appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thank you, Paul I like that name. Uh, Is that uh, Shri Nakan? Uh, no, that's an Indian. Um, oh, well, Indian. close. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Very close indeed. Well, thanks very much, David. My and, pleasure. Um, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM. Now you can take all the complaints on the phone. Oh, that's right. And we'll listen to all the uh, the flat, flat Earth <laughs> yeah. Society people give us a little call up and um, have a chat to us about, <laughs> about what they think is actually going on. But thanks once again, David. My, my pleasure. The time's now 12.06 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM. And that was Regina Spector live with her song Silly Eye Colour Generalisations. 
I'm sure there's probably some genetics behind it too, but uh, <laughs> a very entertaining song nonetheless. The time is 10 past 12. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM. And I've got a, um, another guest on the phone with me. Um, now, last time she joined us, uh, I told her that uh, we were going to have a little theme song for her. And this time I think I've found something. So um, if I can get this working, we're going to have... Claire Grills taking us into the wild. <laughs> what do you reckon, Claire? Is that a, is that a good theme song for you? Oh, that is so appropriate. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> That's wonderful, Broad. Thank you so much for the theme song. I feel so special yeah. now. I feel like a regular special guest. Oh, you are, you are. It's wow. a pleasure to have you back on Fuzzy Logic uh, oh, to talk some so animals. Oh, it's so good to be back. I've got my own, like, 60s theme music. I feel like getting on the platform shoes and, like, having a bit of a dance. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think uh, <laughs> that's that's the plan. Oh, uh, Wonderful. <laughs> now, this week with some animals. Now, we had Friday the 13th recently. Um, we did. A bit of scary did, stuff. Yeah, it was a little bit spooky, a little bit scary. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you saw the uh, the full moon last week. It was huge. It, was, it sure was um, shining out all the stars last week. It was just like this massive platter in the sky. It was amazing. <laughs> so, um, in light of this, no pun intended. Um, I thought I thought I'd give a little bit of a um, brief, I guess, um, introduction. Maybe dispel a couple of myths about some animals that um, have a bit of a have a bit of a hard time when it when it comes to the um, spooky and scary stuff. The ones that get a bad rap for being associated with the macabre and the deathly ways of the world. Uh, they're not as scary as we think they are. They never are as scary as we think they are. Humans have a really amazing ability to just tell lots of lies and then <laughs> turn it into common knowledge, in inverted commas. So <laughs> I thought I'd talk about three today anyway. Right. Um, and the first one, I mean, you, you can't really go past the vampire bat. This is probably the most unfairly hated of all animals. And um, bats, of course, um, are really associated with just Dracula. Um, but the first thing to remember or know is that vampire bats, they, they don't actually live in Transylvania. They, they don't live anywhere in Europe. They only live in Central and South America and nowhere else in the world. Okay. And um, secondly, everyone thinks because they're called vampire bats that they suck blood like, like a Dracula. Um, but, I mean, they do drink blood, but they don't suck it. They only... They only lick it. So, <laughs> so I don't know. That might make it better. That <laughs> might make it just like marginally better because they're not actually sucking. They're, they're just having a little lap. Yeah, that, that, that makes it seem quite cute and cuddly, yeah, you know, the way a dog would run up and lick, lick yeah, your hand and your face exactly. and just have this bat licking your open wounds. <laughs> <laughs> do, they, do they lick human blood as well? Sorry? Uh, do they lick human blood as well? Uh, no, not not usually. I think there uh, may have been like a few uh, cases, maybe just in in folklore. But um, normally, it's big mammals like uh, cows and sheep and 
and um, in in um, South America, it's the tapir. So that really large sort of um, uh, elephant-looking animal that lives in the jungle, and they typically feed off one of them. But they're only really small; they're only about thirty grams each. So they're um, they're actually quite cute, <laughs> and um, and they only drink a tablespoon of blood a night before they get really bloated and have to have a sit down. Um, oh wow! <laughs> I know, I know. And the other amazing thing about these animals is. They're the only animal I know of that can do cartwheels. No way. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. They're so agile because they, they have to fly very close to the ground to pick up the warmth of a potential host that they're feeding on. So once they reach the ground, they, they can run around on all fours so with, their, with their little arms, with their little like wingy arm things and mm. their legs. They hop over things and they can do cartwheels as well. So they're pretty special animals. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I want to try and find a clip of these cartwheeling bats. <laughs> yeah, in <laughs> fact, uh, in fact, uh, the interesting thing about bats that I, that I always found interesting is that that they're actually mammals and not, uh, you know, that although they fly and that they're actually exactly. blind, isn't it? They they can't see or something like that, and they yes. use us radar, yes. I think, to or sonar, one of the two things to find their way. Exactly, exactly. Especially with the vampire bats and other, um, other, other bats from the group called the Microchiroptera, which are the, the tiny little bats that are insectivorous and carnivorous. Um, they have the big ears and the weird, like, little squished up faces, and they're the ones that use echolocation to, to find their way around. They're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. I just love them. <laughs> um, but the next animal I wanted to talk about, uh, was in fact the raven, and um, I don't know. These these guys get a hard time as well for different reasons. They have associations with death, ravens, with hell. Um, they are often depicted picking out lambs' eyes, which is a little bit um, I don't know, maybe true sometimes, but you know, unjustified association with hell, if you ask me. Uh, and but some scientists actually agree that ravens are the second smartest animals after humans. Yeah. So even even though they may be uh, they may be picking out um, defenseless little lambs' eyes, they're also quite intelligent while they're doing it. Really? Because I, I didn't think birds were all that intelligent. But how have they shown a raven's mm. intelligence? Yeah. Well, um, just one story that I'll that I'll tell you um, about. Now, the first thing um, that you need to know is that ravens can't smell. So um, this is why you always see them gorging themselves on roadkill because they can't smell it like we can and they can just <laughs> access all those great nutrients without having to gag every time that they take a bite. Uh, but, but when you're a scavenger, like a raven, you never know when your next meal is going to be, so you have to hide some for later. So that's what these ravens do. They're always um, caching their, their, um, their find and, and the um, roadkill. But because they can't smell, they have a very hard time finding where they hid it. So they have to hide it in extremely precise locations, and then they have to remember each one of these locations. So, so maybe that it's behind that third tree, second second rock to the right of the the, the dirt patch, sort of thing. So they're like they're they're targeting the exact lo- location, and it isn't just one location that they're that they're storing their food in, it can be up to about 60 different locations. 
and they can remember each one of them. Oh. And then um, the, the really smart ones and the really clever ones actually follow other ravens and work out where, <laughs> work out where their, their storage is. So not only do they have all their... Um, their caches, but then they can go and raid their friends as well when they get extra hungry. That's that's but, pretty impressive. I mean, I can barely remember where I park my car most of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's actually well, reminded me of another story I've heard on ravens um, and their, their cleverness, and they, they're pretty good at counting too. Um, I don't know whether you've heard this one. There was a, a raven um, in a, a, a an old castle in England um, and a, a gentleman wanted to get rid of it um and so he he'd walk in the castle with his shotgun uh, and but as soon as he walked in the raven would see him and fly away um mm. so then um uh one day he decided to try something a bit different he walked in with him and a mate um and then the the farmer walked out but left his mate in there with the shotgun uh but the raven still didn't fly back until he saw that his mate had come out as well so he's actually counting the number of people that had gone in and in fact wow. they got up to i think it was either six or seven people going in and the raven was able to keep count for that whole time um until eventually they did just get too many and the poor old raven was uh disposed <laughs> of but <laughs> it does show that it was it was clever up to a point and could count up to, to to seven so i think that's pretty impressive too yeah, that's that's very interesting that you say that that number because a lot of scientists believe that ravens are actually more clever than seven year olds. So maybe <laughs> maybe that 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 number's got some special significance to it there. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a really amazing clip on YouTube as well that I have to put a shout out to, and it's a raven um, using a tool to access um, some meat from a jar, and it it, it uses um, um, sort of a piece of wire. But instead of just using it as a straight piece of wire, the raven actually bends it three times so it becomes a hook. And then it, it, it actually manipulates it with its beak to get the meat out of the container. It's, it's absolutely amazing footage. You have to have a look at it. Yeah, you have to send it through to us. We'll put it on yeah, we'll, onto definitely. our um, Fuzzy Logic Facebook page uh, yeah. so all our followers can have a, have a look and uh, see no that very problem. clever raven. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely have raven footage. I don't know if I have um, cartwheeling and the last animal that I wanted to give a special mention to, and this is probably the most underrated domestic animal of all time. I have a special, special place in my heart for this animal, and that's the goat. Um, and so, I'm sorry, you... Are, you, are you claiming that the goats are scary? Because weren't we talking about spooky, scary animals? Well, the goat has this... Um, association for being the, the cloven hoof animals that, you know, that's it's sort of counterpart with the devil. Ah, oh, okay. You know, you know, goats so, yeah. and devils the, the, and... The devil's scapegoat, and all that yeah. Sort of, yeah, it's always, it's always the goats that get the hard time. I'm not saying that they're necessarily really spooky, but they definitely okay. have an association um, with, the, with, you know, bad things happening. Okay, yeah. You know, they aren't all, all very... <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying here. And, um, and what I've actually come to find is that goats were the first animals that we domesticated. So 9,000 years ago, we um, domesticated goats. And this was before sheep and, and horses and cats and dogs and everything like that. So goats have been with us for a long time. And I'm, I'm not quite sure why they... Um, why they they got this special association, but it might be something to do with 
the goat's eyes. And I don't know if you've ever looked deep into a goat's eyes, Broad, have you? <laughs> no, I can't say <laughs> Well, if you do, you'll notice that they actually have rectangular pupils. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's extremely amazing. Yeah. Um, and I'm not quite sure of any other. Maybe another cloven hoof animal might have the, the um, rectangular pupils, but they're really special. And um, another very special thing about the goats is that um, they they first discovered the wonderfully stimulating properties of coffee. So we have <laughs> we have them to thank for coffee over eight hundred years ago um, in Ethiopia. Yeah. There was a there was a goat herder, and um, this goat herder noticed that his goats were much more active. After having a mung down on the um, the the coffee bush plants, ah. yeah. So, Herder, like any other good scientist, did some experimenting and um, realised that these beans had something very special about them. Um, collected them and took them to the local monastery, where they turned them into um, the first brew of coffee. And um, that that was a very happy day. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, very impressive stuff. I mean, I certainly know if I don't get my morning coffee, people can certainly get my goat. Um, oh, so- God! <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, but, yeah, look, I've actually just Googled goats um, and found these amazing rectangular pupils. Uh, so we'll have mm. to put that one up on our Facebook page too. Definitely. Just, uh, very interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks yeah. so much for um, uh, dispelling some of those myths about the uh, spooky animals for us, Claire. And, oh, uh, there, there is a lot of myths out there, Bride, and um, yeah, it's just a matter of time till I get around to them all. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that uh, the, in the entire animal kingdom, I mean, humans are very feared. I'm, I'm sure that animals are always more scared of humans than we are. We can ever be of them. <laughs> That's exactly right. I feel exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining us on Fuzzy Logic, Claire. It's been a pleasure Not to have you. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Thank thanks. You. Yeah. Right. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM. Whoa, that ending caught me out there. The song just suddenly finished. <laughs> That was Vampire Weekend with Cousins, and uh, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic with Pallavi and Broderick in the studio. And uh, Pallavi, to finish off, you got a new bit of science for us. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that uh, a lot of people will be happy to hear this news because um, yeah, this has something to do with teeth, and I'd read somewhere that 95% of humanity is going to suffer from some kind of tooth ailment at some point in their life, and apparently now scientists have identified a gene uh, that uh, is needed to make tooth enamel, and uh, what they found is that humans cannot restore the tooth enamel when it is damaged because the cells that produce it retire once enamel fully covers mature teeth and uh, consequently if, if something goes wrong then then it just keeps going wrong and you know we all know what happens then and, you know you have to rush to the dentist uh, but so but these scientists have been able to identify the gene which is responsible for uh, creating this enamel and uh, uh, you know scientists suggest that uh, the protein that is created by this particular gene FAM20A 20A may boost the production of enamel by binding to um, uh, ameloblast which is uh, the particular protein protein and so you know we could in the future have medicines or you know gene therapy which may actually be able to solve all our dental problems
Amazing stuff. So there you are. So future genes helping us out <laughs> to, um, yeah, to keep our teeth healthier and <laughs> yeah. uh, keep them for longer. Yeah. I mean, it's a pity we're not like um, uh, sharks where they just keep coming back and, you know, keep getting new ones. But, uh, uh, yeah, and I was told by one of my doctor friends that toothache is actually one of the worst kind of uh, pains because... Uh, the tooth can that's the only sense that the tooth can feel like the pain you know it doesn't feel any other sense except pain (laughs) (laughs) okay i mean it makes you wonder why i mean i suppose we've got it in there for health reasons you know to make sure our teeth are there but it'd be nice if i could just get rid of that pain sensor (laughs) in your teeth um so we could uh not feel it at all (laughs) well that's fantastic well that does bring us to the end of uh the, uh, the episode for today for Fuzzy Logic. It's been a really interesting show. Thanks very much to David Renicky for coming on um, and uh, chatting to us about the latest astronomy news and also to Claire uh, for bringing us some spooky, scary animals. And I do promise, uh, listeners, that I'll put those links up on the Fuzzy Logic Facebook page so you can have a look at some goat pupils and uh, mm-hmm. some ravens using tools to help themselves out. So check it out, Um And if you're not already uh, a friend of ours, then uh, please sign up and uh, click like on Fuzzy Logic and you can get all our updates for our upcoming shows and what's going on. If you did enjoy today's episode, you can podcast it. Just go to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX, that's all one word, .podbean.com and you can download the podcast or you can just type in Fuzzy Logic into iTunes and you can find us there as well. Uh, so some fa- uh, some great ways to listen to today's episode and previous episodes as well if you have missed any. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you with us today to share in some science. And uh, today is the 22nd of May, which is uh, the birthday of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle back in 1859, a great Scottish novelist, physician and spiritualist. His uh, fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes, uh, was one of the uh, original forensic scientists, I reckon. And I thought it was... Uh, Great to leave with a a quote from Sherlock who says, It is a capital mistake to theorise before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. So uh, I hope you've learned about a few theories today and a few facts to back those up. Maybe the Flat Earth Society people should probably read a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds uh, like a great idea, Pallavi. Thanks very much for joining me in the studio today, Pallavi. Thank you. No, Broderick, uh, my pleasure. And thank you, listeners. We'll uh, be back with you again at 11.30 next Sunday right here on 2XX 98.3 FM.